I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. If you enjoy listening to the LRB podcast, then you'll probably enjoy reading the LRB. You can subscribe to the LRB from just £1 per issue. To find out more, go to lrb.me forward slash listen. That's lrb.me forward slash listen. Or click on the link in the description below this episode. Hello, and welcome to the London Review of Books podcast. My name is Thomas Jones. Today I'm speaking with Emily Wilson, a professor of classical studies at the University of Pennsylvania, translator of the Odyssey and Booker Prize judge, who has a piece in the current issue of the LRB on the Oresteia of Aeschylus. It's a review of three recent translations of the trilogy by Oliver Taplin, Geoffrey Scott Bernstein and David Mulroy, but also a consideration or reconsideration of the way Aeschylus's plays are conventionally thought about, especially in their representation of women. Hello Emily and thank you very much for joining me. Nice to talk to you. Hello. Perhaps to begin, you could briefly tell the story of the plays for people who may not be entirely familiar with them. Agamemnon's return from Troy. and mm-hmm. Sure, yes. So I, so the Trojan War happens between the, the Greeks and the Trojans, or the, the allied Greek forces and the Trojans. Um, after 10 years of war, the Greeks win. So the Agamemnon starts with, a, with Clytemnestra um, learning about the, the fall of Troy. Her husband, Agamemnon, is one of the Greek commanders who's been fighting at Troy for 10 years. We learn in the first choral ode of the play that, about the start of the war and how did it happen that the Greek fleet got to go to Troy to make war on the people of Priam. We learn in that ode that the goddess Artemis was enraged at the Greeks and didn't want to let the wind blow to let these Greeks go fight in that foreign city. And she set Agamemnon a terrible choice that he had to sacrifice his own daughter, Iphigenia, in order to make the wind blow. And the chorus um, frames this terrible choice in terms of a conflict between Agamemnon's male community, all these guys, these soldiers who want to go to Troy to get all that loot from this wealthy city, who've been promised a chance at that, versus his loyalty to his household. And Greek his oikos, which might involve ideally not killing any of his children. But he makes the choice that he is going to sacrifice his own daughter, Iphigenia, to make the goddess um, let, let the wind blow and let the troops go to Troy to kill more um, innocent civilians as well as more warriors. And it's framed as this terrible choice, which, will, it's, uh, which is itself terrible and will lead to terrible things. And then the play traces the beginning of the terrible things that emerge from this choice to make war and this choice to kill a family member, kill a female family member. Um, Agamemnon arrives back from Troy, all chuffed and excited and accompanied presumably by a lot of um, props of treasure from Troy um, and also accompanied by an enslaved woman, one of the daughters of King Priam of of Troy, Cassandra. Um, she knows that bad things are going to happen as soon as they set foot inside the house. But Agamemnon, who's presented as this 
kind of privileged idiot, thinks it's all going to be just fine. And surely everyone's very happy to see him, including his wife. As it turns out, his wife is pretending to be very happy to see him, but is not quite so happy to see him. She welcomes him into the house. She um, urges him to trample on the rich tapestries that he's brought back from Troy, which are blood colored. So he's stepping on blood as he steps into his own house. And then once, she gets in, once he gets inside, um, she makes him a nice hot bath and axes him to death. And she also axes Cassandra, the foreign woman who knows that there's trouble inside the house and that there will continue to be trouble for Agamemnon's heirs even after he's been axed to death. Then in the second play, we have a sort of um, rewrite of the same basic narrative of two women, two, a man and a woman against a man and a woman. Electra and her brother Orestes, who's now all grown up, who are the children of Agamemnon and Clytemnestra, plot to kill their mother for, in revenge for their dead father. And after a lot of futile attempts to raise the ghost of Agamemnon and a lot of lament for the past, they do finally um, kill their mother along with her boyfriend, Aegisthus. So then the final play is sort of reckoning with, is there going to be any end to the cycle of revenge? The ghost of Clytemnestra raises the furies, the goddesses of revenge against those who spill the blood of families. But there's a new response or maybe a new response to this issue of violence, cyclical violence and violence within families, um, which is the establishment of a law court in Athens, a democratic system whereby um, people are going to vote to see whether Orestes gets condemned for being a mother killer or is he going to get off because he's, he's done, his, done his time for the crime. Um, and it's a play which sort of grapples with how, what does politics mean? How might politics both be a solution, but also how might it exclude certain voices? It's an all-male jury in which the Furies, who are calling out for vengeance for the mother's blood that's been spilt, they don't get a voice in the trial. And they get a limited place within the future democratic city of Athens. So I think it also takes us back to that beginning question, which the Agamemnon starts with, of what happens to the blood of Iphigenia, which was what started the whole thing. Iphigenia is gagged, she doesn't get to speak, and she gets killed. That's a superb summary of the of the plays. Thank you very much. And and so the, the sort of standard way of thinking about these, or as it were, as I, I learned at school, was that it's uh, they plot the movement from barbarism to civilization, from from revenge, from an endless cycle of revenge and vendetta to the rule of law and a system of justice and that this kind of movement from from darkness to light and one of the things that you make quite plain in your piece is that it's a lot more complicated than that but is that how it would have been seen by the audiences in four five i'm about to get the date wrong in the mid fifth century bc well yes i mean if only we had you know exit surveys about what did the audience in the first um in the first showing of this tetralogy um of course, we don't have that kind of evidence. I mean, all we have is the evidence of the plays themselves. And we also know certain things about Athenian social life and Athenian law. And I do think it's relevant that that in Athens, there were explicit laws in the middle of the fifth century legislating about what are we going to do about people who are not citizens but live among us? What are we going to do about, about metics? The, these immigrants who are coming from different cities and we might not want them to have a full voice within the political community. 
So I think there was, I think we have sort of really clear legal and social evidence that the question of who gets a voice in the assembly and who doesn't, including both debate about people who come from a different city who are foreigners, and also debate about how exactly are we going to make sure that women don't have any of the autonomy that they might have in in rival Greek cities, such as in Sparta. I think both those questions were, um, from everything we know, um, sort of hot social questions within Athens. And the question of exactly how many people, if we had polling, exactly how many people would have said um, foreigners should have a voice in the assembly or that kind of thing, how many people would have said maybe we should let our women have a little bit more autonomy as they do in other Greek cities. Again, how how do we know that? And how do we know what the women themselves thought? How do we know what the enslaved people thought? None of that. None of that's going to be answered from our texts. But I think that just from the text itself, we can see that Aeschylus puts a lot of prominence onto when female identifying people, such as the Furies, who are not women, when they do speak, what do they have to say? They have a lot of really interesting things to say, and he gives them a huge amount of airtime. So it's not that I'm, because I'm imposing my own modern views, I'm saying, I think it might be interesting to hear from the women. It's that when reading the text, the text seems to say quite a lot about the perspective of the female identifying characters. And I just think this is a very simplistic reading of the text we have, even if you set all social context aside, if you leave out the way that the, the text problematizes what is the concept of decare that we're operating with. So decare is the Greek term that, that means both justice in a sort of cosmic sense, in an ethical sense, in a sense of balance, and then also applies to law courts. I think people in Athens, but but particularly Aeschylus in this trilogy, is really putting pressure on the multiple meanings of that term justice, how it means so many different things to different people and in different contexts. And also simply, I mean, the fact that the title of the first play is Agamemnon, but he's a Clytemnestra and Cassandra both, and the chorus as well. I mean, they have more lines, don't they? So in that sense... Yes. So it's just in the sense of... So Greek, Greek plays were played... The, the Agamemnon was, would have been would have had three actors. The protagonist, meaning the first actor, would presumably have been Clytemnestra, because she's the one who gets the best part. She has the mo- both the most fun lines and also the majority of the lines. And the antagonist, Agamemnon. Or the deuteragonist, the second actor. Deuteragonist, yes. yeah. But, some, but he must have had to play several parts because Agamemnon isn't, isn't that big of a part. And the, the third, they were some of the first plays to have three actors rather than two, weren't they? They were. So Aeschylus started off his career using only two actors. And we're told by Aristotle that Sophocles was the one who had the great idea of introducing a third. And in the Aristotle, you can see Aeschylus experimenting with this new form. And he's doing it to to really great dramatic effect. So, for instance, in the Agamemnon, um, the audience might think when, when Cassandra first comes on, maybe she's just an unspeaking part. She's just standing there. She doesn't say anything for a long time. But then she, all of a sudden she starts talking. And you, and you realise, you might think she wouldn't, wouldn't even speak Greek because she's supposed to be Trojan, but she can speak Greek. And she turns out to know a lot more about the inner workings of this um, Greek, Greek household than Agamemnon himself does. Although, of course, the actors would all have been, would all have been men. They would all have been men, yes, exactly. So, th- so that whole question of... Um, are we actually getting the voices of real ancient Greek women in these plays? Obviously, we're not. Obviously, what, what we're getting is a particular imaginative projection by an elite Greek man 
in a play performed by and for elite Greek men. But the text is is still the text. It's as the text is the text, and it's and it's a it's by a pretty smart Greek man who is able to at least imaginatively acknowledge um, all these fissures within the within the ideology of androcentric democratic Athens. The plays were themselves part of a competition, weren't they? And that they and they won first prize. Would they would they all have been watched on the same day? They would all have been watched on the same day. So both the so the, the three plays that we have um, of the Aristia plus the Sata play, the Proteus. So it would have been four plays all back to back, like a binge watching episode. Judging would also have happened within that same Dionysia festival. The Aristia got top prize. Um, but did it get top prize because the judges thought, oh, this says something nice about me because it shows that um, I'm like the goddess Athena and I get to legislate and I'm, I'm important? Or did it show, you know, Athens is great. We love, love plays that show that Athens is great. That doesn't necessarily mean that every member of the audience had the same opinion about it. It just shows that the people in the front row who got awarded the role of judge they thought that it was. Oh, done. is that how it was done? It was whoever happened to be whoever got there first on the front row. No, no, they, they were appointed. So once you've been appointed as judge, then you got the front row seat. And but presumably, the experience of a play like this, which has so much dense language, but also presumably had so much dense choreography, it would be totally different depending on whether you were sitting in the back or the front. Right? You'd be really, really far away and wouldn't necessarily get all the words if you're sitting right at the back, but you would get the dance and the music. And also, I'm just wondering if perhaps not very. In a, in a metatextual way, whatever the, the idea that the that the plays which are trying to win the prize and then it ends with this here is the, here are the here are the judges and the juries and they're making this decision and they decide to award it this way and if there's some sort of implied plea to award the award, the I mean, prize. I guess you could read it the other way, right? You could read it that within the world of the play, the jury is split. It's, um, there's equal number of votes on both sides, so the judging doesn't actually work very well just as a process. Um, I mean, I think you can also say, I mean, you could say, yes, this is great. This is a celebration of a democratic institution. And look how great it is that we have juries now. And we didn't used to have juries um, back when we were a tyranny. But then also what happens in the humanities is the jury doesn't manage to come to a decision. And instead, they need a single person who's operating a little bit like a tyrant who comes in and says, I'm going to go with this because of my family heritage, which says that um, I'm always going to side with guys instead of women. Yeah, like Mike Pence casting the deciding vote in the Senate, as it were. Exactly. Um, yeah, or the or the Supreme Court. Yeah. Or, <laughs> yes. and presumably, presumably, Booker Prize um, deliberations are nothing, are nothing like nothing that. Nothing like this. No, it's very, very, very democratic in all possible ways. And in the, these, the three translations that you've that you've um, reviewed, these recent ones. I mean, among many recent ones, it's I mean, it's quite striking how many translations of the Oristar there have been in the last decade even were disappointing in that they didn't address many of these questions they sort of took seem to accept too easily the this idea of it's about the movement from from revenge to justice and the triumph of democracy and these sorts of and is that but presumably that isn't or maybe it is a dominant strain in Aeschylus scholarship mm, yes I, th- I think it's one of those instances where popular perception and popularizing perception can lag behind scholarship. I mean, I think there's a lot more awareness among at least some classical scholars that, you know, the representation of gender, the representation of political exclusiveness and inclusiveness within Athenian tragedy is pretty complex, and the ethics of Greek tragedy are pretty complex. 
I mean, I, the one I found in a way most disappointing because I had the highest hopes for it is the Oliver Taplin introduction. Because I, I think he's a great scholar of Aeschylus and of Athenian tragedy in general. And I think it's maybe partly that because he was writing for a general public, there turned out to be this real oversimplification of the of the terms in the framing of the trilogy. And I felt with, with the others, it's just sort of tapping into what you learned in school and this um, very, very under-problematized idea about what civilization or what justice might be within the world of these plays. Something that I wondered is how much had to do with something specific to Aeschylus, because so again at school that reading Euripides for A-level and also that in, in performances of Euripides that you know Diana Riggs Medea there are these it seems to be that the idea that these women's voices feminist voices it's a more complicated the idea that Medea isn't just a baddie who kills her children is <laughs> a kind of as more going on here that even within popular perceptions of Euripides plays and with the back here and I was wondering if sort of people are prepared to read or watch or perform Euripides in these ways, but are less with Aeschylus, if there's... Yes, that's, that's, very, that's very interesting. I mean, I, I wonder if... I mean, the, one of the first... Mo- maybe the first moment that we have the sort of canonization of the extant three Greek tragedians is, is Aristophanes' Frogs, which was performed in 405, in which he stages the... Um, joke debate between Euripides and Aeschylus and presents Aeschylus as this um, ponderous traditionalist. And Euripides is the one with the exciting new ideas and the the trendy beliefs in made-up gods and always putting hysterical screaming women on stage and it's so much more fun. But Aeschylus is the one who has the, the polysyllabic words and the great civic values. And I think that actually sets up later reception to this um, simplistic binary, where, where in fact there might be certain things that Aeschylus and Euripides have in common in terms of their complex representation of political communities. I, mean, I think tragedy in general, not just um, Euripides, is interested in that, those boundaries between who gets included in their civic community, who's, who's part of our city-state and who's not part of our city-state. The Antigone by Sophocles is also about this. It's not just those two. I mean, almost any Greek tragedy you can think of is in some sense about that, right? It's about who's outside, who's inside. How might that boundary be a problematic boundary? And which was a very live question, obviously, in the... Absolutely, in, in yes. The century. Well, as, as it is now as well. As it is but, now, yes. And I suppose the other thing that sort of relates to that, the way that the Athenian democracy and the way it's always held up as this ideal that all citizens have a vote and not acknowledging how many people are excluded by the expression all citizens. Right. And what, you all know, citizens means, you know. meaning all um, enslaving men who, <laughs> who, were, um, who had gone through military service, so, which of course is a, is a pretty small su- subsection of the population. It's not nowhere near even a quarter of the population by most estimates. People have, people have different estimates, but maybe 10%, maybe 20% of the population. So, I mean, I think it's not actually all that... I think it would be weird if a, a intelligent person like Aeschylus hadn't had some thoughts about the exclusiveness of democracy as well as the greatness of democracy. Yes, of course, yeah, and also, yeah, democracy depends on who is the demos. And, I mean, there's a sense in which it was... I mean, it was an olig- in that case, it was an oligarchy. If you have... You know, it, was a, it was a it was a large oligarchy, but it was yes. I mean, I think within within fifth century terms, it's different from an oligarchy because inclusion in the in group that gets a voice is not dependent on um, your father having a lot of money and a big name. So in that sense, it's different from an oligarchy. But just in terms of how many people 
get to have a say, it's slightly more than in oligarchies, right? I mean, so once Athens became, with the, with the oligarchic coup, when the 400 were in charge, 400 is less than 6,000. So it was fewer people, but it's still more, it's not, it's not like it's a radical change, you could say, I mean, between 400 men who had more money versus 6,000 men, some of whom didn't have quite so much money. Those are the, those are the choices, right? Or else one man who's the tyrant. And you mentioned the, the Aeschylus' polysyllables. And there is the, I mean, the question of his, his Greek, I mean, it's very difficult, well, I say very difficult, relatively difficult, isn't it? As you'd never, you would never set Aeschylus as an A-level text in the way that you would Euripides. <laughs> and, and obviously that poses particular problems for translators as well, because there are many knotty passages where it's very hard to see what he's getting at. It's very hard to see what he's getting at, and it's also very hard to figure out how do I make sure it doesn't... I mean, you can, as a translator, you always have to decide, what am I translating? And in the case of Aeschylus, do you want to translate the difficultness? If you don't, you're, you're ignoring something which seems to me a super important part of the text. I mean, in, in the course of the three plays that we have from the Aristotle trilogy, um, you go from extremely difficult language to slightly less difficult language. And that's part of the progression or slash change that the trilogy is tracing between this um, world of mystery to this world where it's sort of clear where the, hi- where the hierarchies are within the world of the um, Athenian polis. Um, and that's there in the language as well. So if a tri- translator leaves that out, it's a pretty big part of the trilogy that's being left out. But then do you want to make it totally incomprehensible? Um, how, how hard can you make it while, in order not to totally lose the audience or not totally lose the reader? And then there's also just um, questions that are inherent in translating um, Athenian tragedy in general, even the easier plays by Euripides to do with um, how alien verse drama is within a contemporary literary context. Right? I mean, modern playwrights don't usually write in metrical verse. And we usually have a really clear distinction between musical theatre on the one hand, like Broadway and Disney, um, and Hamilton versus serious literary drama, which is usually not metrical and usually doesn't have songs all the time. And so I think there's also a really difficult question for translators about how much do you represent the poeticness and melodicness? And that's even beyond this, the fact that Aeschylus loves doing these long, long compound words, making up long compound words and embedding metaphors and then me- embedding one line later, there's going to be a t- totally different metaphor also embedded in the language. Yeah. Well, I suppose Tony Harrison is, is an example of someone who does, but that's a self-conscious imitation of, of ancient Greek in his his um, his rhyming metrical plays, isn't it? And because, but Hamilton is a is a good example though, because that is, I would say that is sort of serious or is taken as a more seriously than much musical theatre. So it is it's serious political drama, which also has some funny moments and also has very marked poetic and melodic musical. Um, it's, it's doing something with music as well as doing something with words. Um, so I think it's actually a, a pretty good example of a modern cultural artifact, which is quite similar in certain ways. And did they was there music on the on the Greek stage? How, mu- how much music would there have been? Well, the choral passages would all have been sung and danced to. So the fact, I mean, the fact that if you go to an ancient Greek theatre or the remains of one, that big round space is for the chorus to be singing and dancing. So during, so we, so Athenian tragedy is always composed with 
episodes of actors doing dialogue in a less in an iambic meter, which would have been spoken and then interspersed with now there's going to be a choral episode and they're going to be singing and dancing with music. I mean, the question of what's authentic is also a good one, right? I mean, who, who knows what authentic means? Does authentic mean that you're trying to take somebody back in a time machine, which in fact, authentically, you can't do. So you're pretending to do something you can't do. Or does authentic mean you're going to reproduce this felt politically vibrant in 458, so maybe it should feel politically vibrant now. That might be authentic in a certain way. I mean, so you talked about Tony Harrison, that Tony Harrison um, masked version, which was, I think, National Theatre, BBC. You can see bits of it on YouTube. They have masks. It's all male actors. It's gesturing towards a certain kind of authenticity. But, of course, there are certain ways that it's, I mean, I would say that the the Furies are kind of underplayed in the Tony Harrison or Astaire. And presumably they, they actually did dancing and singing that made them sound fascinating and scary, which I don't think they do in that particular production. I mean, there, there haven't been as many, to my knowledge, productions with um, full score, as you might think. I mean, with, with really a lot of music, but there have been some. And of course, there are operas versions as well. Operas, exactly. I mean, opera is another, as well as Broadway, opera is another place you could go to find analogues. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that you, you say in your piece is that um, endless translations of the same old texts are not self-evidently a good thing, but obviously there are reasons to have new translations. Have you ever been tempted to translate Aeschylus yourself? I love Aeschylus. Um, I mean, I, I don't think I feel right now that I definitely need to do it because, as I try and say in the, the piece, I think both the Sarah Rudin version of the Aristaya and the Oliver Taplin version of the Aristaya are pretty good. And, I mean, I do feel that if you're going to do a retranslation of a text that's been done a gazillion times already, the, the, I, I really do think that one needs to have a clear sense of there's something about this text that I think I can I can bring to readers who haven't necessarily read the Greek, that's going to be both authentic and illuminating and engaging in a different way um, and, and also a responsible rendition of something which isn't getting across in the versions that I'm trying to use. In the case of Aeschylus, I think it would be a really fun challenge, but I also am not sure that it's needed in the same way that it might be for some other texts. And obviously you did have that sense with the, with the Odyssey and you had a, a way that you saw you wanted to, wanted to translate it. I wonder if you could just talk a bit about how you came to decide to do that. Yes. So, so I, I, I wouldn't have done it if I hadn't been asked to do it. Um, I was asked to do it by a Norton editor that I'd worked with on the Norton Anthology of World Literature. Um, and they were looking for a new one. And, I, and I, I, I took quite a long time trying to figure out if I thought I should do it because of that question of does the world really need this? And also, is it a good, good use of five years of my life? And then I, I did some just review and reading of other translations and also just thinking through um, my own experiences as a teacher of American, American college students of how do I teach the Odyssey in translation using these diff different translations? What do I find difficult to get across in the classroom using these translations? And after doing that exercise and then sort of doing close readings of bits of the Greek next to a dozen different relatively recent translations, I thought, actually, I would like to do a new one because, I mean, I guess one of the big things that I thought about was verse form. The big trend over the last, I mean, not really trend if it's decades long, but the 
the dominant thing over the last few decades in Anglophone translations of Greek and Roman verse in general, not just Homer, is to use um, non-metrical verse, like either free verse or you could call it stacked prose, um, where it doesn't have a rhythm, even though the original has a very regular rhythm. So I, I felt that the dominance of either using a prose translation or using a stacked prose translation where it has no rhythm, that seemed to me conveying a somewhat limited vision of what, what does the Odyssey sound like, especially because the performer laudability of the Odyssey seemed to me so important to how the Odyssey and the Iliad were experienced in antiquity. So I wanted to do a very regular, very regularly metrical version. And I also wanted to do a version that would be reflecting something of the syntactical clarity of the Odyssey. I'd, I'd done translations of Seneca before, and I didn't want to make the Odyssey sound like Seneca. I didn't want to make it sound like, here's some show-off rhetoric, and yay, I'm going to be all in your face with my show-off rhetoric. I wanted to make it very much antithetical to that, and the, the sort of clarity and simplicity to Homeric diction, to, um, to Homeric syntax, at least, if not diction. And then at the same time, I also thought there's a way that... Uh, that um, the most read, the best-selling, usually North American translations, tend to impose a sort of Odysseus-centric viewpoint onto the Odyssey, which I actually don't think is at all how I read the Greek, and it isn't how many Homerists nowadays read the Greek. There's been a lot of um, sort of focus on Homeric point of view, Homeric um, shiftings of point of view, that you're looking through one character's perspective and another character's perspective. Here's another character speaking. And I felt that that wasn't getting across at all well in a lot of the translations that were most commonly being read. That fluctuation between, it could be her perspective, it could be his perspective, and, and it shifts. So those things made me think I might want to try doing something different. And it's not necessarily that I thought, you know, it's going to be the best translation, but just it's going to be different in ways that are valid. Yeah, no, that makes sense. I mean, just in a very crude way of that, the first time sort of having read abridged versions, which made him the hero, just reading reading the Odyssey and seeing how much of it, or even just how much of it is about Telemachus, about Odysseus's son for a start. And that, and also that his, I mean, that Odysseus is the one of the early great unreliable narrators. Here he is, he washes up on a beach and comes up with, yes, well, everyone else on my ship is dead, and this is how it happened, and it, none of it was my fault. I mean, that's a sort of... So there must be a lot of fun to be had exactly. with that. The leaders who say none of it's their fault, yes. <laughs> we have a lot of those nowadays, but yes. So right now I'm doing the, I'm doing the Iliad, and it's a whole other set of challenges, but in a, in a way there are comparable challenges too about um, different kinds of challenges of male leadership and distinguishing between these different styles of male leadership and the costs of that male leadership on the other people. And there are, well, there was a, um, about, I can't remember if it was, it was a possibly a review of Peter Green's Iliad, but talking about, because the last translation that I read was Robert Fagel's, which is really, um, was struck by how incredibly bloody and violent, and there's a real emphasis on the, on the sort of the guts and the gore. Anyway, it's incredibly compelling, but the, but you can miss, you know, that emphasis means that you miss, you miss a lot of other, I don't know, moments of humour or all sorts of other... And I suppose the question with the Iliad, the bits which are sort of possibly written later and things like that, and the, are those things that you would try and signal in a in a translation? I mean, there's the famous helmet, isn't there, which is not made of bronze, or is that right? Or have I got that, got that wrong? But these moments which may have been written later, if you would try and signal that in a translation. 
Right. I mean, I actually think all the Homeric question kind of things, I think the place for those is the introduction rather than the translation. I think the translation should be a rendition of the standard text. Um, and, and there is such a thing as the standard text. There are, there are minor variations within different modern editions, different renditions of the ancient text. I mean, this applies to the Odyssey too, right? That, that there are questions uh, and there's still debate in, among Homerists about exactly what was the process of composition. Um, can we actually trace differences between parts that may have been added later in terms of the storytelling? Iliad Book 10, in which, which is the Night Raid book, is often said to, said to be a later addition to the story. But what exactly does later mean? And doesn't uh, clearly by, by classical antiquity, that was part of the Iliad. So it doesn't seem to me that as a translator, I need to, need to sort of try to go back to the prehistory of the text and uncover. I mean, just as if I was translating Hamlet into French, I wouldn't think, actually, I need to translate a Hamlet. I would think I actually have to translate Hamlet and then I can give you some notes about what Shakespeare's sources might have been. And I think, I think it's actually not that different from this. I think there needs to be some framing of the, the way that Homer isn't an author in the way that Jane Austen was. But that's not the same as saying... I'm going to do. I think Stephen Mitchell is the the one is the one modern translator I know of who follows the um, very controversial and, in my he- my opinion, wrong-headed views of Martin West, who thinks of Homer as an author, very much like a very very literate kind of author who was compiling from different versions of the story and didn't include Book Ten until much later. And so Stephen Mitchell, following that kind of marginal scholarly theory leaves out book 10 from his from his translation i'm not planning to do that emily wilson thank you very much thank you very much it's fun to talk to you you can read emily wilson's piece on the oristia in the current issue of the llb along with tj clark on pissarro and cezanne christopher taylor on martin amos's new novel claire wills on ali smith and andrew o'hagan on the new romantics thanks for listening you can find a link to llb pieces relevant to this episode in the description below